Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Tuesday, April 26th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how the CIA funded that 1954 animated adaptation of Animal Farm as part of their anti-communist propaganda campaign. Plus, the woman who found out she'd been missing a chunk of her brain for most of her life without realizing. And why more and more rivers are being granted legal personhood. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. So last Wednesday, I mentioned that Andy Serkis is directing a new cartoon adaptation of George Orwell's Animal Farm, and I casually slipped into that announcement how the existing 1954 cartoon adaptation, which many of us may have watched in classrooms growing up, was covertly funded by the CIA as anti-communist propaganda. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Now, first of note, this was the first feature-length animated film in Britain, and every single voice was done by just one performer, Maurice Denham. It was also originally rated X by the British Film Board because they thought it wasn't appropriate for anyone younger than 18. And in a true measure of shifting sensibilities, the film now has a U rating for Universal, or All Ages. But on to the very interesting part. How the CIA came to fund this cartoon. Written by a British author in the midst of World War II, the original Animal Farm book had nothing to do with America. The satirical allegory was, according to Orwell, reflective of the events leading up to the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the Stalinist era of the Soviet Union. But at the same time Orwell was putting the finishing touches on the book, what he would later call his first true effort to fuse politics and art, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency was busy forming the Office of Policy Coordination, or OPC, a covert wing of the agency focused on psychological warfare, or as The Guardian put it in a 2003 article, quote, creating culture as a secret weapon to combat communism around the world. End quote. And quoting further from that piece, which largely pulls from Francis Stoner Saunders' book, The Cultural Cold War, The CIA and the World of Arts and Letters, quote, The Cultural Cold War began in post-war Europe, with the fraying of the wartime alliance between Washington and Moscow. Officials in the West believed they had to counter Soviet propaganda and undermine the wide sympathy for communism in France and Italy. The CIA recognized from the beginning that it could not openly sponsor artists and intellectuals in Europe because there was 
so much anti-American feeling there. Instead, it decided to woo intellectuals out of the Soviet orbit by secretly promoting a non-communist left of democratic socialists disillusioned with Moscow. Ms. Stoner Saunders describes how the CIA cleverly skimmed hundreds of millions of dollars from the Marshall Plan to finance its activities, funneling the money through fake philanthropies it created or real ones like the Ford Foundation. End quote. So Animal Farm was just one of many dalliances. And once the CIA had decided on adapting the story of Animal Farm into a feature-length animation, they called on their Hollywood undercover agent, Joseph Alsop, and a seemingly none-the-wiser Los Angeles writer named Finnis Farr. The two were dispatched to England to negotiate with the recently widowed Sonia Orwell for the rights to her late husband's novel. And to butter her up, a CIA official secretly made arrangements for her to meet her hero, Clark Gable. Having been successfully courted by Gable, Orwell gave Alsop and Farr her blessing to adapt Animal Farm, and production began. Allegedly unbeknownst to most people involved with the film, CIA officer Howard Hunt was in charge of the whole operation. Hunt would later be convicted as one of the members of the Watergate break-in team. But back in 1951, he was busy recruiting Louis de Rochemont to produce Animal Farm. De Rochemont had made a name for himself as the creator of the newsreel-slash-commentary series The March of Time. Now, for such a pro-American film, how did it end up getting made in Britain? Well, production costs were lower, for a start, but more importantly, some historians suggest that de Rochemont, or the CIA, may not have trusted American animators. Several in the industry had been questioned during the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings, including Walt Disney himself, although he was mostly there to accuse his former employees, particularly those who had tried to unionize, not because he was suspected of communism himself. But many animators and others in Hollywood were blacklisted as a result of the targeted witch hunt, which ended up leading to the jailing of the infamous Hollywood Ten. With so much suspicion of Hollywood animators, it was seen as a safer bet to hire their British counterparts. Or it could have just been the various connections de Rochemont and others had with screenwriters and producers in England. In the end, 80 people worked on the film for a period of three years. The scripts, written by married couple John Hollis and Joy Batchelor, went through many revisions throughout production, so it's unknown who ultimately made the decision to alter the film's ending, though blame is often placed retroactively on the CIA. So rather than the book's ending in which the farm animals can no longer tell the difference between the human farmers and the tyrannical pigs, in the animated film, the humans are absent at the end and the farm animals trample the pigs to death emerging triumphant. While some disagreed with the change from Orwell's more nuanced philosophical ending, others at the time saw it as more upbeat, you know, one of the many infusions of optimism or lightness that experts say were necessary for the film to be able to compete with Disney's animated movies. The movie didn't do too well when it was released, it actually took 15 years to earn back its budget, but it went on to become a staple in classrooms, not just in the UK and the US, but around the world. But the CIA didn't stop there. They also adapted 1984, two years later, and also changed the ending of that one. Quoting the New York Times, In the book, the protagonist Winston Smith is entirely defeated by the nightmarish totalitarian regime. In the very last line, Orwell writes of Winston, He loved Big Brother. In the movie, Winston and his lover Julia are gunned down after Winston defiantly shouts, Down with Big Brother! 
Such changes came from the agency's obsession with snuffing out a notion then popular among many European intellectuals, that the East and West were morally equivalent. But instead of illustrating the differences between the two competing systems by taking the high road, the agency justified its covert activities by referring to the unethical tactics of the Soviets. End quote. Like Animal Farm, this 1956 adaptation of 1984 didn't have a stellar reception at the time. In its case, it went on to be largely overshadowed by the Michael Radford adaptation actually made in 1984. But both represent this strange ripple of time when the CIA poured huge amounts of money and time into creating culture as a secret weapon. It's interesting to think about within the context of our current digital and political landscape, especially looking at some of the ways Russia has been manipulating social media through bots, influencers, and state-sponsored media in recent months. You know, I wonder what departments there currently are in the CIA covertly fighting back against those efforts again, ones which we may not be made aware of for decades to come. What if you went your whole life without many medical issues to report, pretty much living an average, maybe even above average life, getting a graduate degree, becoming proficient in a second language, and then one day you end up getting a brain scan for a seemingly banal reason, only for the doctors to come back and say that an entire chunk of your brain is missing. That's what happened in 1987 to a woman who made headlines earlier this month for being the subject of a new study about her missing left temporal lobe and her almost complete lack of side effects. While her case seems extremely unique, there's almost certainly others out there like her. I mean, if you're not experiencing any symptoms, how often do you get your brain scanned? It's kind of like chromosomes. We just sort of trust that we have the ones we think we do, but how many people actually get them analyzed? Not many. And in fact, another woman eight years ago was found to have lived the first 24 years of her life with no idea she was missing her cerebellum. The cerebellum, which is responsible for movement and coordination, seems pretty dang crucial, but apparently not. The only side effects that woman reported were dizziness and a bit of a clumsy gait. But back to the first woman who is choosing to go publicly by her initials EG for privacy and her missing left temporal lobe. It's thought that a stroke as a baby led to the missing temporal lobe, but over the years, EG never got many good answers. Doctors would just be mystified, and they frustrated EG with their insistence that she should have symptoms or disabilities that she didn't. But more recently, she was put in touch with Evelina Fedorenko, a cognitive neuroscientist at MIT studying the brain regions involved in language learning and comprehension. And finally, E.G. encountered a scientist who treated her with dignity and without assumptions, and Federenko met someone more than willing to offer their brain up for study. Some background from Wired, quote, For most people, the majority of language processing takes place in the brain's left hemisphere. For some, the load is split equally between the two hemispheres. Even more rarely, the right hemisphere takes up most of the task. Scientists are not quite sure why, but if you're left-handed, it seems you're likely to wire up your language system in the right hemisphere, says Greta Tukute, a doctoral student in Federenko's lab and the first author of the paper. Language processing largely takes place in two major regions of the brain, the frontal and the temporal regions. The temporal lobes develop first, then the frontal areas develop later, at around five years old. At this point, the language network is considered fully mature. Because EG's left temporal lobe is missing, Federico's team had a chance to answer an interesting question. Are the temporal regions a prerequisite for setting up the frontal language areas? 
end quote. So in their first study with EG, recently published in the journal Neuropsychologia, they investigated whether EG showed language activity in her left frontal lobe, suggesting a pre-existing temporal lobe is not necessarily required for language areas to emerge. So while EG performed language-related tasks like reading, the team monitored her brain activity and ultimately found no evidence of language activity in that left frontal lobe. So it seemed like one does need the temporal language areas in order to have the frontal language areas. Because EG performs high-level cognitive functions with no issue, it seems, and the fMRI confirmed, that all of her language processing simply happens in the right hemisphere of her brain. As Wired puts it, quote, Just how remarkably little the uniqueness of EG's brain has on her day-to-day life shows how sheerly expendable big chunks of our brains can be, end quote. And Federinko says this is true, and in fact shows the excellent engineering design of our brains. A lot of it is redundant so that others can act as fail-safes when one part is lost. And this is particularly true the earlier in life one loses a certain part of the brain or functions. Neuroplasticity is much stronger in childhood. It's easier then for another part of the brain to take over by forming new neural connections. Federinko's lab is continuing to study EG's brain, looking at the visual word form area of her brain and hopefully down the line her auditory system as well. And here's one more absolutely wild thing about this already very unique case. EG's sister is missing her right temporal lobe and has also experienced very few side effects. It's thought that her temporal lobe is also missing as a consequence of an early childhood stroke, which is likely genetic. The whole family is now getting involved, having their brains scanned and undergoing various studies in the lab. So far, the rest of the family have had two fully intact temporal lobes, or as EG calls them, boring brains. The Magpie River in Quebec is now legally a person, the first river in Canada to become one, legally anyways. While it's the first river to be granted such status in Canada, it is not an entirely unprecedented move. Indigenous communities around the world have been using legal personhood as a strategy for protecting nature for several years. The Klamath River in the Pacific Northwest was granted legal personhood in 2019, a year after Colombia's Supreme Court granted the same status to the Amazon. The Magpie River, known as Mutahiko Shipu to the Innu First Nation who declared it a legal person, now has nine rights, including the right to flow, maintain biodiversity, have legal guardians, be free from pollution, and to sue. In this case, a hydroelectric dam had been built on the land back in the 60s, and the Inu First Nations Council hopes that by establishing legal personhood, they'll be able to fight back if Hydro-Quebec tries to build another dam. It's a way to give the people and the land a little more power and make sure the government knows that they can't just do whatever they want. Quoting National Geographic, Granting rivers legal personhood represents a seismic shift from the bedrock belief in Western society that humans are at the apex of the natural world. But for many indigenous people, the concept of nature as a sentient equal to humans is nothing new. In Maori culture, for example, ancestors, or tupuna, are embodied in the landscape. I see the river and the trees as ancestors, says Wabakan Mestuosho, a member of the Mutuheko Shipu Alliance, the committee that advocated for the river's legal rights. They've been here long before we have, and deserve the right to live. 
Now, while the personhood movement reconceptualizes the relationship between rivers and people, granting non-human entities personhood is an existing Western concept applied to corporations that can bridge Western and indigenous legal systems. In the case of the Magpie River, indigenous law is showing up in a language that Canadian law can understand, says Lindsay Boros, a law professor at Queen's University in Ontario, end quote. Because the concept of granting personhood to nature is relatively new, it hasn't been challenged in any courts just yet, so we'll see how that may unfold over time. And there's no standard to exactly what it means yet either. Sometimes it translates into a list of specific rights, sometimes similar rights are acknowledged but legal personhood is not granted, and sometimes all the rights and protections of personhood are fully granted, as is the case with the Wanganui River in New Zealand, the very first river in the world to be granted personhood back in 2017. In addition to establishing certain legal rights and appointing guardians that advocate on behalf of the river or other natural resources, granting them personhood can drum up attention and interest in the location, leading to more people wanting to visit or help conserve the area. And many indigenous communities are now leading trips along these rivers to help educate visitors on the history, cultural significance, and the threats to their beauty and utility, all part of the growing industry of ecotourism, and one which locals hope will grow support for conservation. As Boros told National Geographic, quote, Law is only as powerful as people understand it. Until then, it hasn't been written on people's hearts. It's only been written on paper. When we go into other people's territories to enjoy the natural beauty there, I hope we can find ways to discover their laws and live and breathe them so that we're good visitors. End quote. And as Mestawosho said broadly of the pushes for legal personhood, quote, We need to see that as humans, we are not above the water or the animals. We are part of a whole. When we heal the earth, we heal ourselves too. End quote. Well, that's it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.